Time to get paid, time to get paid, time to get paid, time to get paid. It's a good day, it's a good day, it's a good day. Every single way, every single way, every single way, every single way. It's a good day, it's a good day, it's a good day. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Good Day Podcast, the greatest podcast in the world. This your boy Zenfo. You already know. Uh, your boy Chief. He had, you know, he, he doing his thing. He going to work. You know, what I'm saying, handling them business, paying them bills, and everything like that. I hope you guys enjoyed the last though. Back Thursday. It was way back when. That's when we had the Code of Conduct podcast or whatnot. But yes, without further ado, today I'm going to switch things up. Because someone came up to me and asked me. It was like, well, what was the meaning of the Good Day podcast? How did you come up with the name and everything? I was like to motivate. You know, say I want to give perspective. You know, back in the day, we used to give interviews and all these things. And that got me thinking. I was like, hold on. When's the last time I motivated? I love the comedy. I love it. I love the discussions and everything like that. But... I don't want to stray away from a certain purpose, and that's to motivate as well. So I heard this interesting speech. It's it's from a while back. It's from the guy uh, with the movie The Pursuit of Happiness originated from his story, Chris Gardner. And I couldn't believe his trials and tribulations. And since we're living in such harsh times nowadays and a lot of things to go through and a lot of adversity to deal with, I just really want to to make you guys hear his speech because <clears throat> as soon as I heard it it affected me um, completely I was like wow my, my life ain't nothing compared to like this guy this guy was really hustling I was like if I was him I would have gave up a long time ago um, so with that being said I hope you get something out of this I hope you feel motivated and I'm gonna drop things like this as well I'm gonna still continue on with the hijacks I'm gonna still continue on with the comedy the discussions um, I might drop it even more frequently you know just to, to change things up or whatnot but you know saying that was the main purpose and without further ado this is chris gardner and his pursuit of happiness um and please listen because there's certain details that the movie didn't um touch on but it's extremely motivating and and i hope you get something out of this and thank you so much for listening this is the good day podcast this is your voice and folk folk <laughs> without further ado chris gardner This whole part of my life, I, I always like to let people know right off the bat, folks wonder, and it's a fair question, how did you become homeless in the first place? Was it drugs? No. Was it alcohol? No. There's something more lethal or just as lethal as both of them. It's called life. Life happens. As a young guy of 23 years old, I had a chance to go to work one of the top young heart surgeons in the world. Uh, we had met while we were both in the military. I was a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman. Dr. Robert Ellis had been trained by two pioneers in cardiac surgery, Dr. Ditton Cooley and Dr. Michael DeBakey at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. So for me to have a chance to go to work for and to become the protege of someone of that caliber in science and medicine was huge. I was 23 years old, single, no children, 
had a chance to move to San Francisco, I took the job for $7,500 a year. Dr. Ellis and I worked together for four years. We co-authored and published numerous articles on the preservation of myocardial high-energy phosphates, work that I'm told is still significant today. About this time, I met, fell in love with, moved in with, and had a child with this beautiful woman who had just graduated from the University of California Dental School. Becoming a parent for me was the most important, precious, and loving thing I'd ever been a part of in my life. I was one of those little boys who grew up without a father. Not just without a father, but with a stepfather who was fond of reminding me at every opportunity he got, I ain't your daddy. You ain't got no daddy. With a few other words thrown in there, trust me. I made a decision at five years old. I didn't know what a commitment was. I kind of knew what a promise was. I promised myself at five years old, when I grow up and I become a man and I have children, my children are going to know who their father is. No one's ever going to be able to treat, talk to, or terrorize my children like this. I made myself that promise at five. So 23 years later, at 28, I became a parent. So now it was time to walk the walk. And becoming a parent for me, it wasn't just some biological extension of the bloodline. There was a whole lot of stuff that came with that. I had worked my way up to the top of the food chain at the university. I'm now making $17,500 a year. My ex had not passed her boards. She couldn't practice dentistry. I'm the breadwinner. I had to forget about science and medicine. I had a family to take care of. I went into sales. I began selling scientific equipment uh, down in the valley, 40 miles south of San Francisco. The computer industry was in its infancy. And I started selling scientific equipment. Big guys in that business made $80,000 a year. We had this one guy, I'll never forget him. His name was Ray Moss. He made $80,000 a year, and he used to walk like he was the NBC Peacock, right? Just because he made eighty grand a year. And I remember thinking, man, I want to walk like that. One day, I was at one of my accounts, San Francisco General Hospital, where there's never any place to park. I see a guy that represents the beginning of my life beginning to change. I didn't even know it. Sharpest guy I'd ever seen in my life. No flash, no BS, just sharp. And he was driving this gorgeous red Ferrari. He's looking for some place to park. I go over and I say to him, you know what? I'm coming out. You can have my parking place, but I got to ask you two questions. The two questions were, what do you do? How do you do that? Turns out this guy was a stockbroker. And he was not just a stockbroker. He was one of the top institutional salespeople on Wall Street. And he was making $80,000 a month. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in this room. But I'm pretty good with numbers. And I figured that out. One guy was walking around like the NBC Peacock. 
The other guy was rolling like a rock star. I knew what I wanted to do. So I started spending a lot of time with this guy in his office in downtown San Francisco when I was supposed to be 40 miles away selling scientific equipment down in the valley. A couple of things happened. His firm did not offer a training program for young guys like me who wanted to be in the business. So he introduced me to friends of his who ran branch offices for companies like Merle Lynch, Dean Witter, uh, Payne Weber, Killer Peabody, uh, E.F. Hutton was still in business. And I started interviewing. And I also started hearing the word no more than I ever heard in my life. No, no, no. The other thing that began to happen was I began to accumulate a serious amount of parking tickets. Double parking, illegal parking, late to feed a meter. I remember um, I heard a couple of other words from my ex. I think I remember them also. Uh, they were delusional and unrealistic. She had a point. Major Wall Street firms have begun to require an MBA just to get in their training program. I had never gone to college. Did not mean I wasn't smart. Didn't mean I wasn't bright. I just didn't have a college degree. I was the only applicant that could say I've co-authored and published numerous scientific articles in major scientific journals. I had a sterling recommendation from one of the top young heart surgeons in the world, but I could not get in. I interviewed for a year. And I've been asked many, many times, why do you think it took you a year just to get an opportunity to be in a training program? Was it racism? My answer is no, absolutely not. Was not racism. There's another ism called placism. Think about it. I had never gone to college, did not come from a politically connected family, had no money of my own to invest. Who's going to do business with you? That's placism. That could affect anybody in this room. But I kept coming back. And I kept coming back for one reason. My mother. I had one of those old-fashioned mothers who taught me, and I believed from the very beginning, that I could do or be anything I wanted to do or be. I believed it. I made up my mind early, my first ambition in life. I wanted to be Miles Davis. Hey, she said anything I wanted to do or be, I wanted to be Miles. I studied trumpet for nine years. I got pretty good at it. And understand me, I did not want to be a jazz artist. I did not want to be a jazz musician. I wanted to be Miles Davis. My mama had finally heard enough of this, I'm going to be Miles Davis stuff. We sat down one day and we had what I will always remember as the talk. And she explains to me, she says, baby, you know what? You're pretty good with that thing, but you can't be Miles Davis. Ain't but one, and he got that job. <laughs> and when your mama put it to you like that, you got to feel that. And I had to look at the facts. I mean, look, at 18... At 18 years old, Miles Davis was in New York City playing with Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. At the same age, I was playing with some boys named Pookie and Ray Ray. <laughs> you know? <laughs> hey, we were good. 
said that we were good, but it wasn't going to happen. The point I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is I made up my mind as a young guy. I wanted to become world class at something. I just had to find out what the something was going to be. Uh, had to find the right venue. I remember one of the first stories I talk about in the book. Um, I'm at home. I'm getting ready to watch a, a college basketball game. And the announcer is hyping this game. It's March Madness. And he's talking about all the money some of these guys were going to make simply because they could run and jump and catch a ball. And I said out loud to no one, I was talking to the television, and I said, wow, one day that guy's going to make a million dollars. My mom, thank God, heard me say that. And she says, baby, you know what? If you want to, one day you can make a million dollars. Until she said those words, it never entered my mind as a possibility. After she said them, it was just a matter of finding the right venue. And the first time I walked into a Wall Street trading room, I knew this is the place. This is the place Mama was telling me about. The ticker tape is rolling. The phones are ringing off the hook. People are screaming and shouting out orders. Bodies are flying all over the place. Tickets are getting stamped. And what looked like chaos to somebody else, I knew and I felt this is what it's supposed to be. So I kept coming back. I wore one branch manager down to the point that he says, Gardner, based on persistence alone, we're going to give you a shot. You be here on this day and this time, and we're going to let you in this training program, and we're going to see how you do. That's all I wanted. I'm getting my shot. I quit my job. I'll admit I was a little cavalier about it. As a sales rep for a scientific company, I had this big box of stuff I had to carry everywhere I went, free giveaways for our customers, petri dishes, tissue slides, latex gloves, stuff with our logo on it, right? And in the book, my old boss, he will tell a different story. He will say, I threw the box at him. That is not true. I will compromise and say, it fell abruptly. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm out of here. I quit. I'm going to Wall Street. I went home and I let my ex know, you know what? You said I couldn't do it. But guess what? I'm going to Wall Street. And I quit my job. I was pretty pumped up about it all the way up to the point that I showed up on the appointed day and time only to find out the guy who had made me the promise had been fired the previous Friday. Now, y'all heard me say I quit my job. <laughs> Somebody in here knows what that means. That means no unemployment, no cash flow. And worse than that, now I got to go home and tell this woman I don't have a job. Let me tell y'all something. If you don't remember anything else I say here today, write this down. Unemployment will not help your relationship. <laughs> Somebody know what I'm talking about. Write it down. <laughs> Trust me. She hadn't passed her boards. We're a young family. We got a baby. I'm the breadwinner. And I have quit my job thinking I had an opportunity to go to Wall Street. A tense situation got tense. More tense. 
And I still had one shot left at the street. But before I could play it all the way out, I had still had to take care of my family. I did everything legal that I could to take care of my family and still pursue this one last shot at Wall Street. That meant I cut grass, hauled rubbish, cleaned basements. I learned roofing. I learned painting. I did everything that I could do legally to take care of my family and still pursue this last shot at the street. Things were tense at home, to put it mildly. I had an experience, talk about it openly in the book, probably never happened to nobody in this room but me. I had one of those arguments with my ex that only ended because we both fell asleep. We woke up in the morning, everybody's feet hit the floor, and guess what? We went at it again. The neighbors don't know what's going to happen, what could happen. They called the police. The police come. They want to make sure everything's fine. They take her over here, calm her down, take me outside, calm me down. And my friendly Berkeley police officer doing his job says, do you mind if I search your car? No problem. Go ahead. Search the car. Nothing there. Then again, doing his job says, well, let me just run this license plate through a computer. That was it. I had 12 hundred dollars in unpaid parking tickets that I had begun to accumulate with interest and penalties a year earlier interviewing downtown San Francisco. Now, fair question, you can say, well, why didn't you pay the tickets? You know you had them. True. But the position I was now in, having to cut grass to put food on the table, I did probably what every man in this room would have done. Every dollar that came in the house, I could have paid the rent or I could have paid the tickets. I paid the rent. I was taken to jail. First, last, only time in my life taken to jail for parking tickets. Anybody ever see that movie, uh, Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder? Y'all remember that? Remember that scene where they went to jail? Man, I'm glad I saw it. Hey. <laughs> I had no point of reference, nothing. Put me in a jail cell with a murderer, a rapist, and an arsonist. Now I'm in here on parking tickets. <laughs> first thing you learn in jail, Ken, first thing I learned, everybody's got to tell their little jailhouse story. The first thing I learned, according to the inmates, nobody in there did it. It's all a setup of circumstantial evidence. They asked me, why are you in here? I told them, I'm in it for attempted murder, and I will try it again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, man, Sally, I wasn't going to say I'm in here on no parking tickets. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like, a, um, it's like a, a chain of command had to get established, okay? And to show you how a bad day can get worse, all of this happens on a Friday. Somebody knows what that means. No court until Monday, and we can't hold you in this friendly little downtown Berkeley jail. We need that for our regular weekend customers. I was sent to a place called Santa Rita State Penitentiary where the most notorious inmate 
had chopped 23 people to death with an axe. And I'm up here on parking tickets. <laughs> 10 days. 10 days. And let me tell y'all something else. I know somebody's sitting out there thinking about it. You know what? If you got some parking tickets, you need to get up and walk out of here right now. <laughs> Kid, I know they're thinking about it. <laughs> it could be you. And all I could think about for 10 days, all I could think about for 10 days is where's my little boy? This was the first time we had been separated. And I don't know if you've ever been forcefully separated from your child. If you've never had the experience, I'll pray that you never do. All I could think about for 10 days is, does my little boy know I didn't leave him like my father left me? Does my little boy know I can't be there because of these circumstances and conditions? What's my ex say where my little boy looks at her and says, where's Papa? That's all I could think about for 10 days. And I had to put that out of my mind because I had a more immediate problem. My last interview on Wall Street, my last shot, turns out was set up a day before I was to be released from prison. And to show you how the hand of God has worked in my life, there was a, a, a telephone and there was a guard. And I said to the guard, you know what? I've got one opportunity left to work on Wall Street, but I got to reschedule this one appointment. Will you please dial this number for me? Nothing less then the hand of God would have made a prison guard go over, dial the number I asked him to dial, and hand me the handset and the cord behind the bars. And the conversation is brief and to the point. Uh, Mr. Costello, hey, look, it's Chris Gardner, and something has come up. <laughs> I wasn't going to say I'm in jail. <laughs> Something's come up. I need to reschedule the appointment. Can I see you the day after tomorrow? Fine, done. Set it up 6.30 in the morning. Set it up at 6.30 in the morning for one reason. I knew something. You ever know something in your gut? Nobody's got to tell you. You just know it. Uh, I fulfilled my obligation to the state, my 10 days. They got their $1,200 worth of my time, and they figure we're even. I went to the place we used to call home in Berkeley, California. I looked through the window, and I knew they were gone. This chick took everything but the dust. And unfortunately, most importantly, she took my little boy. We had entered that unfortunate space where sometimes adults start acting like children. And one parent feels like if the only way I can hurt you is to hit you over the head with the baby, I'm going to do it. I put it out of my mind, and I went on this job interview wearing clothes I had worn in prison for the previous 10 days. Now, in the fume. When you saw it or when you do see it, you'll see, uh, remember Will Smith showed up with the, the blue jeans and the paint all over him? I wasn't just wearing blue jeans. I was wearing bell-bottom blue jeans. <laughs> hey, it was the 80s. We all had them. I was wearing bell-bottom blue jeans, uh, Adidas sneakers, my, my work shoes with paint sprinkles all over them, and a members-only jacket. I had a red one. I was the last member. I had a big... <laughs> I showed up at Mr. Costello's front door. 
And he said exactly what I would have said to anyone who showed up at my front door at 6.30 in the morning dressed like that. Deliveries in the rear. I would have said the same thing. But I come right back at him. I explain, Mr. Costello, I'm Chris Gardner. Today's the biggest day of my business career. I must admit, I'm underdressed for the occasion. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> what happened? I could not think of a lie bizarre enough. I told the truth. It was the best thing in the world I could have done. Unfortunately, Mr. Costello had been married and divorced three times. He started telling me stories about his ex-wives. <laughs> that second one, I don't know why he ever got married again. <laughs> <laughs> he told me some stuff about her, man. He went on like that for 20 minutes, and out of nowhere, he says, you'll be here tomorrow, I'll walk you in the training room. Boom, getting my shot. That's all I wanted. I'm hired. $1,000 a month, gross. I moved into a boarding house, three meals a day, and a room. That's all I could afford. I show up on Wall Street my first day. I had to borrow clothes. I show up in a suit, two sizes too big, Shoes, one size too small. That's called a long day. <laughs> Did not matter, I'm getting my shot. As a trainee in this business, you start at the bottom, you do what the brokers do not want to do or feel is beneath them, which is cold call. 200 phone calls a day, I turn myself into a calling machine. I don't know if you guys in the back can see, but in the front, you see how this one finger is cockeyed? <laughs> That's my calling figure. <laughs> Kid, I still use it today. Is that right? 200 times a day. And at night, study, study, study. No one had to tell me I'm only going to get one shot at this test. That's all I wanted. This goes on for months. I passed my exam, highest score in the class, big deal, my reward. I get to come back the next day and make 200 phone calls. A few months later, one in the morning, there's a knock on the door, and it's my ex. And she doesn't want the baby anymore. The exact words were, it's your turn. And just like that, that's how we became homeless. That's what I meant when I said, life happens. The boarding house did not allow children. My son and I were instantly evicted. We joined a class of people invisible even among homeless people, working homeless people. It is estimated that 12% of all the homeless people in this country have jobs and go to work every day. In some communities, that number is as high as 30%. And I'm not talking about the guys outside with the cups. Working Families homeless. My son and I did the only thing we could do. We moved into a series of hotels. And I did put a special emphasis on that first syllable for a reason. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Hey, it is what it is. $25 a day in a color TV. Do the math. You're making $1,000 a month gross. And that man wants his $25 a day cash every day, Saturday and Sunday. It would not work. 
We moved downstream. $10 a day in a black and white TV. Imagine who's living next door to you and your baby at $10 a day. It won't work. Thank God there's a place called Glide Memorial Church and a man named Reverend Cecil Williams in San Francisco, California. My son and I began to, to go to church numerous times through the week. Uh, food for the soul. And just as importantly, food. In the basement of this church is something called Moe's Kitchen, where they serve one million meals a year to people who are in need. My son and I were in need. We ate more than our share, especially my son. Some of y'all know my son. Christopher today is six feet, nine inches tall, weighs 285 pounds. That all started in the basement of that church. <laughs> I tell the reverend every time I see him, you need to let folk know what could happen to their kids. He would see me and this baby standing in the food line. He let me know later. He served that community now for 42 years. He had never seen a man and a baby standing in the food line. And he'd always come over to me and say the same thing. What you doing with that baby? It's my baby. Well, what you going to do with it? I'm going to keep it. <laughs> I have been asked many, many times, why didn't you give the baby to your mother? Well, you know what? That was not my mother's baby. That was my baby. And I have promised myself at five years old, when I grow up, become a man, have children, my children are going to know who their father is. Again, it was time to walk the walk. It was time to walk the walk, okay? So giving my child up was never an option. Um, the Reverend and I got to know each other. We spent some time together, and I explained to him that we're having difficulty saving money. We're homeless, but we're not hopeless. I can't save money quick enough to get some place to live. The problem was, and if you think about it, if you've got young children, your biggest expense next to your rent or your mortgage is what? Daycare. Had to learn about the food chain of daycare. You've got the au pair or the nanny that's there 24-7 with the child. A licensed, dependable daycare center. You got a dependable babysitter, maybe a family member you can count on. At the bottom of that food chain is something called a woman who keeps kids. Hey, she's not licensed, she's not registered, but she provided a service that allowed people like me to go to work. The hardest two things I had to do every day for a year was, number one, leave my little boy with somebody I did not know and hope everything was okay. Now, in this film, you saw Jaden Smith. He played my son as a five-year-old. They did that for the dialogue. My little boy was not even two. And keep in mind, there's only so much a two-year-old can tell you about what happened that day. I leave him. He screams. He cries bloody murder. He don't know it, but I'm screaming and crying on the inside. And all I can say is I'll be back. Papa got to go to work. I'll be back. The second hardest thing I had to do every day was work in this business, a business I absolutely love. 
be surrounded every day by wealth, capital, and investment opportunities. And the second the market closed, you got to figure out real quick, do I have enough money for us to eat and get a hotel room? Many nights I didn't. Until we got into the homeless shelter set up by the Reverend, the Concord Plaza Hotel. Two blocks away from Neiman Marcus, two blocks away from Gucci in downtown San Francisco is one of the worst ghettos of the United States. Think ghetto on steroids. Here was the deal at the Concord Plaza. You got to be out by 8 a.m. You cannot come in before 6 p.m. You are going to work or going to look for work. It is first come, first serve. When you leave the room, take everything in the room that's yours with you. There's no guarantee there will be a room for you when you come back. And if you leave it, your stuff won't be here. So every day for a year, you would see me, my son, his stroller, a duffel bag with all of his clothes in them, the biggest bag of Pampers in the world, a briefcase, my umbrella, one suit on my back, one suit in the hanging bag, and we hit it. Every day for a year. I had two suits, one blue and one gray. The joke around the office began, oh, that's Chris Gardner, he's reenacting the Civil War. <laughs> some days he's with the North, some days he's with the South. It's funny now. That shit wasn't funny there, man. <laughs> Can I promise myself one day it's going to be different, right? Every day for a year. Working in a business, commission-only sales. All that running, you saw Will Smith doing that movie, that money, the running was real. Having to make a decision every day. If I stay on this phone... Another five minutes, I can, I can get this guy's account. I can earn this commission. But if I stay on this phone another five minutes, I'm going to miss the bus. If I miss the bus, I'm late to pick up my son from the babysitter. If I'm late to pick him up, that means I'm late to the shelter. If I'm late to the shelter, that means no more room. First come, first serve. Many days, as a young guy trying to build a business, I had to stay on that phone. And that meant my son and I slept wherever we could, which included hotel lobbies, train stations, subway terminals, if the weather permitted, outside, in the park, airports. This was pre-9-11. Uh, the big airports, a lot of them were open 24 hours. There was nothing unusual about seeing a man, uh, a, a baby, and a whole bunch of stuff. My one residual hang-up from this experience in my life is I got this thing about bags. You will rarely see me without a bag. I got a room in my house with nothing but bags in it. If you can tie a knot in it, if it doesn't have a hole in it, that's a good bag. <laughs> hey, it, it won't leave me. I know that. It was Oprah when we finally did her show. My son uh, made my soul smile. She asked my son, what is the one thing that you remember about this time in your life? 
And what he said was the second most important thing he's ever said in his life. What he said was, all I remember is every time I looked up, my father was there. That's all I remember. And I got to tell you, if that's all that little boy remembers, that means I did my job. That means I broke the cycle of men who were not there for their children. So many nights, honestly, uh, I let my little boy spend the night with friends. They had children. They loved them. But I also knew they were going to eat that night. I didn't have money to feed them. I'd sleep under my desk. Get up in the morning, freshen up as best I could, and I make the 200 phone calls every day. My son and I, too many times, too many nights, there was no place else to go. There was a bathroom in the subway station in Oakland, California. It was clean, and you could lock the door. And I had to teach my little boy how to play a game, and the game is called and that means that no matter what somebody says on the other side of that door, no matter how hard they pound on this door, we're not here. We're invisible. We lived like that for a year until I finally saved enough money for us to get some place to live. Uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book is called uh, Roses in the Ghetto. Uh, we happen to be out looking. Oakland, California was cheaper. We could afford it. And we saw this little house, and there was a rose bush in the front. And I never saw roses in the ghetto in my life. And I thought, wow, this is the most beautiful place in the world. Turns out there was a little old man out here sweeping uh, a slab of concrete that he called the yard. And we started talking, and I, I admired his roses, and I told him we were looking for some place to live, but we were having a problem. Even after I had saved the money, People made value judgments on my son and I when I show up. Where's your wife? What happened? What did that have to do with anything? I'm employed gainfully. I've got the money. We need the space. Let us rent. People wouldn't rent to us. I started explaining all this to that little old man, and he said, son, you don't have to tell me nothing. Y'all can move in here. We moved in. That didn't take long. <laughs> I didn't take long at all. All right. <laughs> we spent the night. First night, we slept on the floor. And we got up in the morning. And this, this is one of those things that will never leave me. Uh, my little boy gets anxious and he says, Papa, you forgot this. Uh, we have to bring our stuff. We need this. He had seen me carry everything we owned everywhere we went for a year. And I can't tell you what it feels like to explain to your son, well, you know what, son? We got a key now. We're home. We don't have to carry stuff anymore. I can't tell you what that, that feels like. Ain't no words for that. The only way I could explain that to you would be if I could levitate myself a good six to eight inches off of this stage. That was a good day. I remember we both skipped to the train that day. And speaking of the train something very important began to happen at this train station two blocks from our house. They started to open a daycare center, a place called Happiness, and they did spell it with a Y. And what made this just so incredible for us 
is right now, the way we're set up, I got a four-hour commute on public transportation to get to the one place I'm comfortable leaving my little boy. But now there's a possibility I could take my son two blocks from my house to a place that's safe and secure and take a four-hour commute out of my life. The problem was they didn't take children who were not potty trained. Man, we went to potty train boot camp. <laughs> we sure did. Send us in all sun. Let's just sit here and talk a while. <laughs> We're going to sit here till something happens. Think about that. You could take a four-hour ride on a bus and a train out of your life. Yeah, we, we, we studied potty training. As we were set up now, we didn't get home to 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And the, um, the ladies of the evening in my old neighborhood in Oakland, California, uh, they would have begun their shifts. And for months, they saw me, this little boy in a stroller. They never saw a woman. They knew something's different here. No questions are asked. No information is given. But they knew something is different here. And they started trying to give my little boy candy. And I said, no, thank you. I didn't let him have sugar till he was four years old. Then they started giving him a $5 bill. And I will tell you, if it were not for those ladies of the evening giving that little boy that $5 bill, there were days I could not have fed him. So to this day, the ladies of the evening are all right with me. <laughs> hey, 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 I don't do no business with them, okay? It ain't like that. But, but think about that for a second. We didn't have a term or words to call that at the time, you know what you could call that today? You could call that a random act of kindness. We don't know what the circumstances are. We see y'all struggling. We see y'all here every day. Here's $5. Go feed your baby. That made all the difference in the world. Friends began to come through for us. We get these phone calls. Uh, hey, look, what, we got an extra bed out in the garage. Nobody's using it. Y'all come get it. You can have it. We got a card table in the basement. We don't play cards down there anymore. Come get it. Put it in the kitchen. That could be your kitchen set. Well, I just bought a whole bunch of new towels. Y'all come get these sheets and stuff. That's how we began to put our lives back together. Uh, we didn't have a car. My old neighborhood, we, we, you know, there was something that community shopping carts, they had kind of been reappropriated, Kim, from the grocery store. They just be around in the neighborhood, right? And I told you today, my son is 6'9", 285. He was an even bigger baby. You see where my hands went? This dude was like the black baby Huey. Okay? <laughs> I could not carry him the dirty laundry and the groceries and my briefcase. So we would find this cart within two blocks of our house. And the joke between he and I is, that's our car. Uh, we'll just get the car and we'll come pick this stuff up. One day, we go out. We go two blocks. We cross the street to go to third block. And we don't see the cart. My little boy stops dead in his tracks, looks me in the eye and says, Papa, where'd you park the car? 
<laughs> he had no idea. He had no idea. That was the point. We're in the cart one day. We're rolling up the street. It starts to rain. We're both drenched. The little boy looks at me and says, Papa, uh, you think one day we can get a car with a top on it? <laughs> he had no idea. And that was the point. He did not need to know. In the movie, they did it very subtly. There were times you would see the little boy was eating, the father wasn't. He didn't need to know that was because that was all we could afford. The times that we were fortunate enough to get a meal and a hotel room, he did not need to know that I had just sold blood so we could. And I say he didn't need to know that for one reason. That's what parents do every day. A big part of the gig is going without so that your son or your daughter don't have to. Somebody did it for us, so now it was my turn. I kept learning the business, I kept growing, and I gotta tell you, one day, you ever have a day you didn't need nothing else bad to happen? I got home one day only to find out the local utility couldn't wait another day to get that $19 I owed him and turn my lights off. And I had to give my little boy a bath by candlelight. And this was the first time I began to doubt myself. The first time I began to ask questions, how much longer can I do this? What's going to happen next? Where am I trying to get us to? And this little boy picks up on it. Picks up on it, stands up in the bathtub, looks me in the eye, and says, Papa, you know what? You a good Papa. That was all I needed. Huh? That was all I needed. That's one of them things my Uncle Joe used to say, boy, if that don't get your fire going, your wood must be wet. <laughs> huh? <laughs> I tell young people every opportunity I get, if you ever want to mess your parents up, go up to them, put your arms around them, say thank you, and walk away. That would mess us up. Because <laughs> we know something going on. Something ain't right. But I kept going forward. I kept learning this business. I got pretty good. I got blessed to find something I love. Uh, we worked in a big, uh, a big bullpen where you could see what everybody else was doing. And every day for a year, there was this little old man who came to see this gorgeous female broker who sat next to me. It was none of my business. And I'd sit there, watch, you know, doing my phone calls. He's watching me. I'm sitting there with a blue suit and a gray suit, making my 200 phone calls. And again, I thought it was a, a client coming to see his broker. Wrong. This little old man was the managing general partner for Bear Stearns in San Francisco. And he was coming to see his girlfriend. And he watched me for a year. And one day he gave me a business card, and he says, you don't belong here. Here's my card. Come see me. I go see him. He tells me the story of this place called Bear Stearns, which at this point in time was one of the most profitable private partnerships on the history of Wall Street. He tells me how the firm was built by entrepreneurs with a strong work ethic. And I've seen your work ethic, and I know if you come here, I'll make you a star. Then he asked me a question. I did not know what he was asking me. What do you need to be here? I figured it out. He was asking me my salary requirements. No one had ever asked me that before. 
I've been making it on a thousand dollars a month gross. I said the biggest, most obscene number that would come out of my mouth. I need five thousand dollars done. Five thousand dollars a month, fifty percent commissions guaranteed for a year. By the way, here's one month's advance. Go buy yourself some new clothes. I went out and bought my first two pinstripe suits. One blue, one gray. <laughs> and we went to work. I went to work with some boys named Weinberg, Feinberg, and Steinberg. Used to call me Gardnerberg. First day, old man Weinberg comes over to my desk and he says, So you want to learn this business? Yes, sir, I want to learn this business. Well, dress British and think Yiddish. What the hell did that mean? <laughs> hey, I didn't know, but I was going to find out. All right? First day, I get this phone call. First day from a Mr. Greenberg. And I don't know the guy, but they made it real clear to take the call. Uh, Chris, this is Ace. And I want you to know, Bear Stearns was not built by people with MBAs. Bear Stearns was built by people with PSDs. We're glad you're here. Get to work. Click. Whoa. Who is that? Alan H. Greenberg, Chairman, CEO, Senior Partner, Bear Stearns. What's a PSD? Poor, smart, with a deep desire to become wealthy. I have found the promised land. <laughs> It wasn't going to get no better than this. Made sense to us. Let's call people that we know have a lot of money. Midland, Texas had more millionaires due to the price of oil than any place else in the country. Made sense to us. Let's call them up. The problem was the boys in San Francisco could not understand what the gentleman in Texas was saying. They were all saying the same thing. I'm in Earl Bennett. <laughs> I'm in the Earl business, Bo. Now, my folk from Louisiana, I understand all that. It's called Texas Ebonics. All right? <laughs> Let me talk to them. None of them had names. They were all AJ, BJ, CJ, DJ. And I hit it off with this one old boy who became not just my biggest account, but the biggest account in the office. And I have to share this with you as honestly as I can. I don't know another way to put it. Every time I get him on the phone, Ken, he would tell me every nigga joke, every Jew joke, every spick joke in the world. And then he'd turn around and say, well, buy me 50,000 shares of whatever you call me about, click. <laughs> Do the math. 50,000 shares, 50 cent a share commission, that's $25,000. I'm going to laugh at your nigga joke for 25 grand. <laughs> hey, man. Hey. I used to laugh like Sammy Davis Jr. I also used to call him a lot. My first year, this is how this thing went with me and him for the first year. And one day he calls me up and says, Chris, I like to know people I do business with. I'm going to come meet you. Oh. 
Hey, I mean, I had blown this cat off a couple of times. My little boy had a soccer game. I had to go out of town to a wedding, and I wasn't feeling too good. But you get to a point where you know, I got to deal with this. I got to handle this. So I said, fine, come on up. My old boss at Bear Stearns uh, ran offices for Bear in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Hong Kong simultaneously. He traveled a lot. He was out of town. And he had this big, beautiful office. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> you know I did. You know I did. Y'all would have done the same thing. I went over there. I took his name tag down. I put mine up. I took the picture of these cute little white kids. I put them in the drawer. <laughs> I sent a friend of mine out to get the cowboy. He came in. I stuck out my hand. And you can see the blood just drained from his face. He's thinking about all them jokes he told me. Did not help that he was this tall. And getting ready for this meeting, I just kept saying the same thing. Chris, you got to keep the focus on performance, the added value you've created in this portfolio, and the money you made for this guy. And I kept saying over and over and over, it's not a black thing, it's not a white thing, it's a green thing. And I kept saying it to myself over and over and over to the point that it came out of my mouth in the meeting. And the guy looks at me and says, you know what? You're right. He closed the accounts he had at Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and Solomon Brothers. I did all his business till the day he died, and he stopped telling me them damn nigger jokes. Okay? Okay? Then he started telling me knock-knock jokes. Let me put all this in, in perspective, if I can. I mean, you guys got other things to do, and uh, you'll kind of have me. Um, wow. This movie, who knew? 300 million people around the world saw The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, February 9th was my birthday. February 10th, Pursuit of Happiness became the number one film in the world. February 11th, I got a birthday present from Will and Jada Smith. We've all heard that old thing about the, the best presents come in small packages. Hey, trust me, the best presents come in Federal Express envelopes. <laughs> trust me on that. I keep look. I haven't even cashed the check. I keep looking at it, saying the same thing. Damn. <laughs> the book, twenty-five weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list, nine weeks at number one. Translated into eight languages and made bestsellers list in five countries. Who knew? One person knew. And that was Dr. Maya Angelou when she told me, boy, this ain't even about you. This is about every father who ever had to be a mother, every mother who ever had to be a father, and everybody who ever had a dream and wouldn't quit. It ain't even about you. And when Maya Angelou puts something to you like that, there's only one thing you say. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Real clear on that. Real clear. Movie great, books great, business great. But the most important thing I've ever done in my life, and I know, 
I will ever do is break the cycle of men who are not there for their children. That is the most important thing I've ever done or will ever do in my life. There's no doubt in my mind. Because I, I broke the cycle here, because I've raised a young man who at 26 years old was finally getting it, the most important thing about being a man is being responsible. And because I, I've raised a young woman who understands how a man should treat her, respect her, and deal with her, I'm going to have influence on generations of my offspring that I probably will never meet. I'm probably not going to be here to see my great-grandchildren. But because I broke the cycle here, I'm going to have influence on these folks, and this is going to be not just important to me and my family, this will be the most important thing I've ever done for my community, my country, and the world. And the last thing I'm going to say up here is this. After you sell $350 million worth of tickets to a film, you create something called a franchise, there will be a sequel, and I will see y'all at the movies. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me here. God bless you. Thank you so much. IEA. Thank you. Thank you so much. Time to get paid. Time to get paid. Time to get paid. Time to get paid. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day. Every single way. Every single way. Every single way. Every single way. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day. It's a good day.